Welcome to this week's Marie Claire Start Somewhere with me, Sarah Vaughan. It's wonderful to have you with us. And this week I am so, so excited because I'm talking to like my dear, dear friend, Kate Silverton, the broadcaster, journalist, and now author. <laughs> Welcome, Kate. Oh, thank you very much, Sarah. And so lovely to see you. I wish you were here in person. I want to reach through the screen and touch you and give you a big squeezy hug. But um, I shall make do with seeing your beautiful smiling face. Hello and hello, everyone who's listening. Oh, that's so lovely. I want to do the same, by the way. I, I, I'm missing hugs. I, 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 you know, I'm a very huggy person normally. So this has been a really interesting time not, not to hug everyone. So, Kate, as you know, we start off with, with really your story of how you got started in life. And you, you had a really interesting start to life. So my mum uh, was a play school teacher and my dad was a London cab driver. So um, I grew up in a family that wasn't sort of abundant wealth wise, but was abundant with love and care and teaching about compassion and, um, you know, having actually a stay at home mum. Uh, so quite a different dynamic, I think, to to many modern women now. Um, I have two sisters, Claire and Amy, and they have lots of children between them. And they are stay at home moms, interestingly. Um, and I grew up, I was lucky enough, my mom's very much stay at home, but my dad's an adventurer. And he was the one that really inspired me to go off to Africa because he handed me my first Wilbur Smith book, if everybody's familiar with Wilbur Smith. But he handed me when I was about 13, 14 and really in that really impressionable period uh, where your hormones are raging and you're sort of seeking risk in life and adventure. And Wilbur Smith books were all about adventure in Africa, but they had like lots of strong women built into them. And I loved the sense of just potential, I think. And, it, and it, it led to me going off to Zimbabwe when I was, well, I started traveling at about 17. I went off to live on a kibbutz in Israel. I traveled Europe on one of those interrail tickets. I went to live with Bedouins in the desert, in Egypt, in Sinai. Um, I then went off to Zimbabwe. So really my formative years were, I think, sort of that combination of having my mum who gave us the stability, but my dad who was like, go off, hard work works, dream big, follow your heart. And actually I was the sort of, I, I call it tomboy, which now we're probably not allowed to use, but actually I was that sort of, you know, I was always to be found under the bonnet of his cab. He was teaching me about engines and he had a really strong work ethic. And I think that combination has led to me being where I am today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I've just got this image. I never realised you could you could fix cars. Now I know how to go to you to go to. I'll give you a call. Um, and along this journey, I mean, like, when and how did you find your your purpose? Uh, you know, on all these adventures, kind of, what happened for you? I've always been, well, interestingly, the combination actually of the being under the bonnet, I've always been curious, curious about how things work. So when I was learning to drive, for example, I couldn't just sit in the car, turn the key and, and, and drive off. I had to, before I could even move off, I had to understand how the gears worked and how the engine worked. And it used to frustrate my dad. But in equal measure, he was quite proud because then he got to teach his daughter about an engine. So I've always had this mind that I like to understand how things work before I, you know, you know, allow them to sort of to, to drive off with them. So and, and I'm curious about people. I love 
understanding what drives people and cultures and what makes us all tick and what unites us. And the traveling for me was fundamental in so many ways because I realized that what unites us all is a smile, is hospitality of inviting people into our homes, of hugs, of being human. And actually there's far more that unites us than divides us. And they were really valuable lessons for a 17, 18 year old to learn. Um, and so that's really, that's, and I went off and if I, I had my 50th birthday, which I can't even believe I'm saying 50. Um, I had my 50th birthday um, recently <laughs> and I had my really fundamental friends from Zimbabwe that I met at sort of 18, 19 were there with me. And we were celebrating the 30 years since we'd been in Zimbabwe. And they were saying to me, God, do you remember how you'd turn up and we'd be in the middle of sort of, you know, Tetsi Island and, you know, we'd find a tribe and you always were there with your dictaphone. And I, and I used to literally take this dictaphone with me. So I was even then, and when I was in Israel, interviewing, trying to understand the, the sort of, you know, the sort of Palestinian, um, talking to a lot of Palestinian people. And then obviously the people that I was living with in, in, in the um, kibbutz really trying to understand what drove people and uh, just cultures and, and, and the colour of different countries. And so I was really then, I think, paving my way to become a journalist. Mm. But, but, and this is the really interesting thing, is that I didn't go into journalism. Instead, having been fueled by this passion about the world and people that lived in it, I went into corporate finance. And do you know what, Sarah? I was absolutely shocking at, <laughs> at, at finance. I mean, I, I think I have the, the, the sort of numerical version. Of, I think I have dyscalculia, which is sort of like dyslexia, but with numbers. I am shocking, as my husband would testify. And I was useless. But I was fascinated by this thing, this pink paper called the Financial Times and, and what stocks and shares were. So I sort mm. of went into corporate finance, just because you do. But there was also a fear underlying that decision. And that was the fear of failure because better yeah. to do something other than journalism. So it didn't matter if I failed at something else because that wasn't really what I wanted to do. There was this subconscious avoidance of following my dreams and following my true passion. And I realized it when my best friend in the world, Jamie, Jamie Rumble, who was this beautiful, handsome, oh, blonde, blue-eyed boy that I met in Zimbabwe on my this mm -hmm. formative expedition with Operation Rally, now Rally International. And Jamie, sadly, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer at 26. And he had a first from Cambridge in zoology. He was one of life's givers. I mean, he was the most extraordinary man. And, and many of my friends even named their son Jamie after him. He, he had a huge impact on all of us. Wow. And I turned up in the hospital uh, when he was in the midst of some really, really intensive treatment. And um, I sort of walked in with my big shoulder pads and my even bigger hair and, you know, kind of looking disheveled and unhappy and, and he's like, what are you doing? And he said, you're clearly not living your purpose. You know, you're not living this passion. You always wanted to be a journalist. What are you doing? And then he said, and I literally can remember, <clears throat> you know, looking at him and he was in the bed and he was hooked up to all these tubes and terrible just drips. And, 
And he said, Kate, please promise me. He said, I don't have long left. Please promise me that you will follow your path. And I made him that promise. And a week later, I phoned the hospital to check to go in to see him. And it was Valentine's Day. And they said, we're really sorry to tell you that he's passed. And I sat there in this office and I crawled under the desk and I sobbed my heart out. And I made that sort of resolution then that I would honor my promise. And I literally picked up the phone to sort of a friend of a friend's cousin's uncle's sort of dog's best mate type, you know, contact, i.e. really spurious contact and just said, I knew that they, they knew the editor, the political editor at the BBC in the Northeast. And I said, um, uh, can I just come up and, and, and just hang out for the day? And this guy said, yeah, sure. Tony Baker, lovely man, political editor. And he said, yeah, sure. And that was it. And I, I put the phone down. And two weeks later, I was on a train going up to uh, Durham to um, I, my lovely, lovely, lovely then boyfriend, uh, Anthony, was, was up there and went up there and got introduced to Tony. And I said, I'll do anything. I'll make the tea. I will do anything. I walked into that newsroom. There were people throwing bits of paper at each other and like, you fuck off, you fuck off. And it was just like, and I thought, oh, I'm home. I just literally felt I'm home. And that was it. I I gave up my job on that basis uh, in the city, which my mum was completely horrified by because I was on a really good wage. And my dad was like, you go, girl, you go. Brilliant, brilliant. And um, and I thought Jamie's going to be looking down and smiling. And um, and that was it. And I I felt an immediate sense that that was where my purpose was. And I finally felt that whatever I did, and I did every job going from making the sandwiches, from answering the telephone, meeting and greeting politicians like Mo Molem, Tony Blair, William Hague, Peter Mandelson, all these people had constituencies up there. And I then did every job going. I was researcher, tea girl. I was making sandwiches on the side at Anthony's shop because he had a sandwich <laughs> shop. And just to pay my rent, I did everything. And And, you know, I know you're going to ask me, you know, later, you know, what advice would you give? And I think for young people now, especially in the current climate, there is still always going to be a market for people who go above and beyond, who are willing to get up at three o'clock in the morning and make sandwiches and pay their way and meet people with a smile. There is always going to be a market for that. We have not lost our humanity and never will we. I dearly hope that we won't. But that's the sort of thing that I think when people sense that you are willing to do whatever and not look and go, well, I'm not, I'm not going to make tea at somebody else's job. You know, it's that difference. And I, I have it all the time now. I always sort of, in the good old days of doing work experience, obviously now that COVID's prevented a lot of that, but I will always say to people, come in, take a look around. And the ones that will offer me a cup of tea, and I don't mean this in a really sort of, you know, it's not me going, oh, go and make me the tea. But it's those who kind of go, oh, I can see you're busy. Can I do something for you? That's the one that I'm going, I will invest in you. When I get, you know, if, if, if someone sits there on their phone and is sort of just, you know, barely even looks up to take in the environment and you kind of go, okay, that's the difference. So there's, there's something there about engaging fully and and if you're in the right place, I think you're never working. I've never felt that I've worked a day since. 
I've always, you know, loved what I'm doing. I always, and, and if I don't love it, I move on. Yeah. And I, and I mean, your career, you know, has taken you the most extraordinary places. I mean, you've been, you've done it all, haven't you? I mean, you, you've been in war zones, you, you've been in wildlife reserves. I mean, your, your passions really, really shine through. So do you want to talk a little bit about like how, how you lived that, have been living that purpose as a journalist? Yeah, again, I think it's, I'm always just driven by my nose, as it were. So, it, you know, any, you, you know, you'll all know this as, as, as journalists, you, you follow your nose, whatever um, part of the industry you're working in. If you get a hunch that something's good, you want to like, you know, you're like a bloodhound and send it. And for me, I did, I'd been inspired by Kate Aidy when I was a teenager. Um, and I'd always wanted to go and cover conflict and, and really get to the heart. I don't like just being told that something is true. I like to really understand it from, from a perspective. I think that was, you know, fueled from the days of living um, in Israel, you know, and um, I, I wanted to understand what was going on in Iraq. And, uh, and I begged my, my boss at the time to send me and uh, not like, many no, people no. would be would be no I know I know <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> clearly everyone's going to go don't take advice from her she's completely um <laughs> not to be trusted but um so I begged him to go and uh he eventually relented and said okay well you can go and cover the Christmas period which obviously they probably thought was going to be just going and covering what everyone all the troops were having for their Christmas dinner but, um, and actually the story there is that I met my husband uh, yeah. because he was a uh, Royal Marines commander who was training me before I went to Iraq. And to, he did that to you, didn't he? Is that right? He did, <laughs> yes. Tied me up, put a hood over my head. It was all marvellous. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yes, he did. So he, I had to sort of undergo hostage training and, and how to navigate that um should it happen when I was in Iraq and so that's where I met my gorgeous man um and heart hostage rather than than, than you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah Stockholm syndrome and I've been in in it ever since um so so yeah so and then I went off to Iraq and and I said to the troops you know I mean when I look back at it now I mean I did it's professionally very fulfilling clearly because I was covering quite a lot that a lot happened during that period um but you know I said to them I really don't kind of spare me I want to be out on foot patrol with you I want to do and they all looked at each other thinking really and I'm like yeah really you know and I probably was a little bit like sort of private Benjamin you know sort of Goldie Horn and those um but equally we did we we I did get fully immersed we came under a lot of fire uh, mortar attacks um, but most importantly for me at the time was to be able to portray how the troops were living not out there because there was a lot of uh, coverage of whether troops were being sufficiently equipped but actually back home I, I was going out in the sort of the the armored vehicles with them and they said okay actually that's not the issue we this is our job this is what we are paid to do this is what we signed up to do what we do have an issue with is our wives and girlfriends back home yeah. who are living in really poor accommodation with with one um young lad's girlfriend was pregnant and was living in with the bathroom had mold in it and mushrooms growing and oh and 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 that was struck me as like this is not part of our military covenant um, we have a military covenant which is the agreement with a nation and, and um, those who serve it. And 
this really, I thought, had broken the covenant. And so I was able to, um, uh, to, to, to engage with the um, officer in command at the time, sort of the general commanding the troops, and have a sit-down interview with him and broke a very big story on with him saying yes that the covenant was out of kilter so finally you know somebody admitting that was a serving you know very senior um general and and so that was a proud moment because that then did become headline news and uh you know to hear that on radio Four. so for a young reporter who then I just I've always felt like I wanted to cover things that mattered to people that I wanted to expose injustice I wanted to tell a, a story properly so that someone sitting at home could really understand what was going on. And it's the same with my work in mental health now is that I really want to explain things in a way that makes sense to me. And if they change my life, I kind of would quite like to then convey that only just because, you know, so, so yeah. So, and then Afghanistan as well, which again, I went out to a forward operating base and yeah. was on sort of helicopters and all sorts of sort of sexy stuff. Um, and um, I mean, by that, I mean the equipment, obviously the conflict itself is not at all sexy and that's that's a conversation for sort of political um you know means and it's uh anyway let's not go down all that path but basically it is again you know sitting down and talking to afghan people and their perceptions and also troops and their perceptions is for me that's the most revealing it's what i all i can do is tell the story and let other people then make their own uh judgments based on what i say you know And you've also done, I mean, you've also, one of your other passions is wildlife and African wildlife. So, so Wil, Wilbur Smith has, has a lot to answer for. So, yeah. so I mean, you, you know, tell us a little bit about, about your, your passion and the work that you've done in that space as well. So, yeah, I, again, from, from, um, uh, from my time in Zimbabwe, I'd always loved, you know, as we all do when we're little girls and boys loving, you know, lions and elephants and then reading Wilbur Smith and reading books like uh, The Burning Shore and Elephant Song and talking about poaching and understanding you know our precious natural heritage Um, and then going to Zimbabwe and seeing that for myself you know having lions outside camp and canoeing over crocodiles and and everything just yeah so so conservation has become a really big part and again it all ties in compassion if we have compassion for ourselves we have compassion for the world around us so it it all comes back to that really but um so I have got very much involved in Tusk which in fact is hosting um uh their awards today with um, His Royal Highness the Duke of Cambridge, who is, is is very passionate about Africa and conservation. And so I, I just do a lot behind the scenes philanthropically in that area, really, in terms of, you know, trying to preserve what we have and conveying how precious it is. And that's whether we live in London or whether we live in Harare or wherever. Um, it's there to be protected uh, for everybody and not least those people who are living in those communities that really depend on us not killing off their homes and their the the, the animals um among you know which they live yeah and now i mean your your spotlight has increasingly kind of shifted in the direction of of mental health and wellness so so tell us how how you kind of arrived at that and and it's been a couple of years now 
Well, actually, yeah. I mean, it's been many, many years. So my degree was in child psychology. So I got a Bachelor of Science in, in, in psychology. And then because I spent so many, I, I've always, I love children. I love just being around them and being giddy with them. But uh, it, we were unable to have children for many, many years and um, had a very long and heartbreaking as many people do um, when you're unable to conceive that we on our wedding day and it's our 10th anniversary just coming up um, (laughs) we had yeah we had um, on our wedding day we had come to terms with the fact that we couldn't have children Mm -hmm. and because it had just become quite obvious that it wasn't going to happen the doctors had said look you know we're kind of at the end of the road so I was 40 and and we thought, okay, we will make our bouquet with the flowers within our reach. We will look at, down the adoption uh, path. And we started that process. And um, I miraculously fell pregnant naturally at 41 and then 43. Um, Lord knows how, but, you know, this is one of the magics of the sort of magical elements of um, life and the universe. Um, and so that really parenting my gorgeous children and you know, that obviously was a natural shift for me, having been this, you know, very uh, career-minded, ambitious woman to suddenly being gifted these two children really did reshape and and realign my focus. And I came back, you know, parenting them and I was able to put everything that I'd learned from my own psychotherapy, from uh, all the work that I'd done, but had been doing behind the scenes with mm-hmm. neuroscientists, psychiatrists, with psychotherapists. So I'd been working philanthropically with a lot of children's mental health charities. It kind of just happened. I don't know how. It just sort of, I suppose, again, my nose was leading me down that path. And mm-hmm. and then raising Clemency and then Wilbur in that environment really led to me going, hang on a minute. Wow. So what you're telling me is that our brains we know when we get pregnant we think about the physical development of our children we don't really think about our brain's development and yet I was talking to these neuroscientists and psychiatrists who were saying this is the fundamental time yes all your neural pathways are being so whether we're risk takers whether you know I mean did you know that by the end of your first year will determine the kind of partner you pick for in romance in no, later life. I didn't Abs- know that. Absolutely that. Wow. So this is this is the fundamental element. So we pick our romantic partners. This is the work of Mary Ainsworth and John Bowlby. We the the career that we take, Sarah, the career that we take <laughs> God. is pretty much determined by the time we're six. Oliver wow. James. I mean, the, the, you know, these are people. So I quote these people in my book. But that I've been writing, but um, it, you know, so when we understand and start to think, well, hang on a moment. So the person I am today is completely as a result of the person that I was from conception through to six. It's pretty mind blowing. Wow! And and that's what led me into this path because I thought I want my children to be resilient and compassionate. You know empathic little human beings who grow to become adults who can stand on their own two feet emotionally to be emotionally well mentally well 
And I can do that with my parenting. So that's what's really led me down this path because I'm like, jeepers, creepers, if I'm blown away by this, this <laughs> cabbie's daughter, you know, who, who just, you know, a few years ago didn't really understand what the hypothalamus did and the cerebellum and the amygdala. And you kind of go, all these things have these big words. Well, actually, I'd like to democratize the knowledge that we have now around neuroscience and I want to make it accessible for everyone. And that's really where my passion is today. Yeah, I mean, that's extraordinary. I mean, I, I, I knew that kind of most of the neural pathways were laid down by the time you were seven. But I, I, I certainly didn't realise that your like things like your choice of romantic partner are determined by the time. Oh my God, that explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, this is why I think it's so fascinating. I want, I want to do a, a, you know, a book for adults because I'm like, when we understand it, you can start working with it and not be afraid. We, we get very afraid of our brains and how we work and our own mental health. And actually, there's, it's, it's not to be afraid of. It's actually to embrace because yeah. when we can understand ourselves, we can start having a conversation with ourselves and being a lot kinder to ourselves because we're like, ah, I see you. I see what's going on there. All yeah, right, now I understand why you're doing that. Yeah, I guess to give our parents kind of a big off the hook, you know, because because actually, you know, they didn't really, they didn't know any better. I mean, the stuff is no. really, was not democratised. I mean, let's face it. I mean, you're learning about this. I, I've just learned an extraordinary fact I have no idea about. And it's like, wow. So it encouraged, you know, so it's kind of like a... Yeah. I think it I think it's I what I want is is I I want people to feel empowered by this knowledge and when we have knowledge we can change we have the capacity to change and I think what has happened a lot in science especially is that all this good stuff has been understood for so long but they haven't been quite you know scientists are scientists they use big words it's what they do and and so I've very long papers yeah you know and I've literally I've, I've sat with those papers. And again, I think all this comes back to this burning curiosity. I don't like not understanding stuff. I don't like being kept in the dark by anything. So, you know, whether it's going off to Iraq and Afghanistan and really understanding what's going on there, or whether it's understanding ourselves and what's going on in our heads. And when you get to that point, you can kind of say, ah, right. It's just quite simple, you know, when you can explain it. So my big task as a journalist has been to disseminate and get all that information and disseminate it in a way that makes sense and is not scary because it's not scary. And, and when we understand that, we can look at ourselves with more compassion. Mm. And I did a panorama this year um, which was looking at violent crime and trauma in childhood. And I've made some of my best friends now, Kevin, who I'm going to give a massive shout out to, who is anyone wants to interview Kevin, you must, because this man is a former heroin user, a former armed robber who has, you know, I met him and interviewed him outside the police station. And, uh, and he said, I used to be shooting up in a van about 20 meters from this police station. Oh Little did I know, he said, if you had told me then that one day I would be in a suit and tie working with the police to bring down violent crime, I would have asked you what you'd put in my needle wow. or what you had in your own needle. <laughs> and, and, you know, and now he works uh, with the police in the police station um, and he is working with young people to 
to bring them back from the brink of violent crime. And I had a FaceTime with him just this week and lovely young lad that I focused in the documentary who had been in prison a year ago. And we celebrated his getting his certificate to work in the building construction industry and getting his first job, which hopefully he will do in a few months time. That's amazing, Kate. And and what what changed for Kevin? Why did he, why did he kind of like, how how did that happen for him? Brilliant question. So in prison, he was very lucky to have um, the support and guidance of really good people in prison. And I've been into a lot of, if anyone's interested in it, it's it's Scotland is doing a huge amount on this now. So in Scottish prison, prisons um, and Polmont, which is the Young Offenders Institute that I went and filmed in, had incredible access to, in looking at care and um, compassion that is conveyed. So instead of punishment, They ask now, not what is wrong with you, but rather, what can I do to help you? And uh, with Kevin, it was in understanding that, and this is is across the board for many, many drug users. And I don't say this as a a, um, sort of a, a cover rule. I say this knowing, having interviewed and spoken to so many now and the work of people like Gabor Mate, who's incredible on this addiction specialist, Gabor Mate, who will say that many, many uh, heroin addicts, when asked, why do you take the drugs, will say, because it gives me the comfort. It's like having the warmth and comfort of a hug. Oh, bless them. And that's the hug that they didn't get when they were children. And this is where we look at neural pathways And why, when you started this interview, you said to me, I'm missing hugs. There is a science to (laughs) hugs. Hugs increase our oxytocin. We have our natural chemical laboratory in our heads that make us feel good. Why do we feel good when we're running? You know, opioids, we have them in our, that's, that's what our brain does. It's incredible. And when you're brought up without that, you're gonna seek it somewhere. Yes. And so for Kevin, that was where he sorted. And he got to understand that. And when he could understand that, he started to think, well, maybe I can just have hugs instead. Uh-huh. And he's now happily married with two gorgeous little girls. Um, and we speak all the time. And he has become so well read in and so well versed in this as a topic that he's now able to go into other young people and say, I get it. I've been there. And trust me, you can stop, you know, you can find another way. And that's much more powerful than locking somebody up Isn't and it? expecting them just to get better, in inverted commas. Well, so it's, I think, sort of a problem, aren't you, in a sense, because you're making course. them even more isolated and even yeah. more, like, you know, because it's all stern and harsh. I mean, there's not much compassion yeah. and love. I mean, I, 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 I haven't, I, I've not been into a prison, but I don't imagine that they're full no, of it's, love. Honestly, and, and any, anyone that really wants to understand what it is like would go in and the, the shock of hearing the doors clanging at sort of five o'clock or I think it was five, when everybody gets locked back up again, all these young kids that I've been speaking to. And, and actually, do you know what? If, if anybody listening to this, this is the other passion that I would have. So let's nail this one. So I met some brilliant, brilliant young men. There's a guy, a lovely young lad called Reese, who is, he wants to become a writer. And, uh, you know, all the prison officers said to me, this, he's a good kid, you know, and he and I have been in constant contact and he, 
he got onto a training scheme with Timpsons. Timpsons are brilliant at employing uh, former, you know, people with prison experience, um, uh, as we put it. And um, uh, and of course, with everything going on at the moment, everything's been put on hold. But Reese, I, I said to him, I went and sat with him in his cell, and we discussed his release date. And um, just a lovely, polite young man who just has not had what you and I have had in life. Um, and you, you sort of think if I, if, if no one's ever told me they love me, how have I got any love to give somebody else? When we understand that, you know, and actually when you look at what he's been through, you can then start thinking, well, God, cripes, you know, he's done really well considering, you know, he's had this experience that he's had. So I'd love anyone listening who feels engaged by this to start considering giving people with prison experience, lived experience, check out Kevin's charity, um, aid and abet, um, and and look at the work that Scotland's doing. Check out my panorama um, that was on earlier this year, just to start thinking. Actually, these kids, if we're talking about loyalty, they're the ones that are going to go. I'll make the tea because I am grateful to be in this position, and I'd love to at some point start opening up a way of saying th th they've got potential. I mean, I sat with. They're so vibrant and they're so savvy. They don't want to be like that. You know, they want just want a chance. And and I, you know, I'm not I'm not being Pollyanna-ish when I say this. You know, it's when you walk in and you realize uh the potential that we're missing. And if you speak to somebody like James Timpson, who runs Timpsons now, and Sir John Timpson, both of whom I've come to know very well, um, they're adamant it's the best commercial decision they've ever taken to yeah. employ people with prison lived experience because they say the loyalty is just off the charts. Yeah, it's so extraordinary. I, I heard this beautiful story this week, actually, um, about, I, I think it was a South African lady, and forgive me if I get this story a little wrong, um, who, who I think uh, an armed robber or something had actually killed one of her family or her husband. And they went to, to the trial and the judge asked her if there was kind of any, any reparations that she wanted. And she, she said, yes, I want him to come and have Sunday lunch with me every week. Wow. And I just thought that was such a beautiful thing to do, that she saw the humanness and almost like the abandonment, you know, and the fact that this person really needed that kind of love and comfort and compassion. And I thought, what an extraordinary kind of kind thing to do. Um, extraordinary but as you say and it does take a lot and I think you know I, I dealt with that in the in the documentary every single person I asked but hang on a moment what if I was the mother of a child who had been killed yeah and the point that always comes back is we want to stop that happening how do we stop that happening we can't just keep locking people up and expect them to come out and not go. So we have to change the way we think to change that cycle, to stop yeah. that cycle. We, you know, and it's not to say that actions don't have consequences because all, you know, that's, you know, the other part. And it's a bit like parenting, you know, actions have consequences. It's not that we're going to live in some liberal environment that just says they're there. You know, you have to understand that your actions have consequences. But what do you do with someone like Reese or, um, uh, you know, the other children that I, I can't name them for various reasons? But, but, but uh, you know, but what, what do we do with them when they come out? Do we say, well, that you're now going to be punished for the rest of your life? Or do we try to show you that there is another way and have you as a taxpayer, which is every single young lad that I spoke to said, I want to pay. I'm proud. I want to pay my tax, my taxes. 
you know, I, I'm proud, you know, Callum that I interviewed, you know, I'm proud to be a taxpayer. I used to cost the taxpayer this much money per year. Yeah. Now I'm paying it back. I so know. we need to be sort of, you know, re- redefining how we view. Um, so uh, we just, I mean, I mean, we should not be locking people up who, who have this kind of spirit. It's completely crazy. They're costing us so much even economically and they can contribute in an extraordinary, beautiful way if we really let them. Uh, and and I, I think the same whether they're homeless or whether they're an addict or whether they are, they are locked up in prison, that if we truly see the uniqueness and the human potential of these individuals and heal their trauma and work with them on that because this is all caused by trauma and yes. early, early stage trauma, then we can really, really kind of rehabilitate and, and move towards a sense of humanness. I mean, we can't punish people for the rest of their lives and lock them up and throw away the key. I mean, that's horrific. I mean, and then we ask, it, yeah, if we ask ourselves, if I, if I was brought up in those circumstances, you know, it's that thing. We have to be able to show that em- empathy is, is when we can put ourselves into the shoes of another. And when we start to do that, we can start thinking a bit differently. Um, to how we want this society to be and and goodness knows so and by the way to follow up on that in Scotland their violent crime has been brought down massively as a result of these initiatives that's what the panorama was about to say so it doesn't only make human sense if you really want to look at the figures it makes economic sense as well but you know what does it say about our society so that's why I wanted to make that program now, I know you're not allowed to talk about your book in too much detail, but you have been, you have been scribbling away or, or typing yeah. away for, 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 for quite some time now. So are you able to, to tell, tell us, I mean, just, just you know, have you got a, a launch date? Can people kind of sign up for it? Yes. Oh, so, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I talk, as you can probably tell now, very, well, you know anyway, but, you know, anyone listening, well, oh, she can talk. Um, well, I, so I have to, the publishers, so well, you can't really talk too much about the book until it's out. I'm like, okay, all right, what can I say? I'm passionate about it, so it's very difficult not to talk about it. It's called There's No Such Thing as Naughty. Um, it's out April the 22nd. Yay! Um, I know, it's really weird seeing it on Amazon. It's like, wow. And um, we pre-order it on Amazon, is that right? Can we order it now? Yes, yes, you can. Fantastic. Um, and it, and it, and actually, it's, it's, it's written with parents in mind, um, but actually, having written it, and I wrote it over lockdown, I'd wanted to do it for years, and the opportunity then arose, um, over lockdown and I thought this is the time to do it and uh it is in essence a culmination of all these interviews that I've been doing with various people eminent people around the world everything that I've learned about brain development and how it shapes us so really I think it will be great for adults as well I'd love to write the adult version which hopefully I, I I will get to do because I am um absolutely passionate but it's for parents to understand this is how we understand our children's behavior through the prism of their developing brains and for parents to also understand our behavior as well. So I've distilled the brain science in a very, very easy to understand, simple concept. I, I can't wait to read it. And you've also kind of like gone back to school and you're, 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 yes. you're, you're tell, tell us a little bit about that too. So I have, I'm now in training to become a psychotherapist. 
Wow. So specifically children, um, I'll be qualified to to uh, counsel adults as well. But my focus, as you can probably imagine, is children. So I have just qualified to work in schools as a children's counsellor under supervision. So I will be but I will be one on one with children in the in in my therapy room. Um, so which is extraordinary. What a privilege. And just I'm really. Yeah, just that's just. Um, it just feels like a very yeah very special thing to to be happening so I'll be working in schools as of January um as a counsellor and then two years are I've got two more years to qualify to become uh so I'll be able to practice privately as a psychotherapist so yeah so that's the big change and I will still carry on with my broadcasting work but hopefully be able to Everything that I'm learning in the classroom and my experiential work that I'm doing, um, I'll be able to then again disseminate and to, to sort of share with as many people as possible. So for parents, it's like you don't have to be a therapist to therapize. You know, we can all do even in the workplace, actually, yeah. is how we how we work with each other. So instead of just asking each other, so hi, Sarah, how are you? We can follow up with, you know, a how are you really on a scale of one to ten. Given we're all Brits, we all know the answer is I'm fine. Yeah, so we, we got to stop well, okay. that. We, it's, 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 I talk about sort of active listening and how we can really help each other. And it doesn't, I think there's this sort of element of like, we go, I'm fine, because we don't really want to hear if, if someone goes, oh, I'm actually not really very well, you know, and we're very uncomfortable at sitting with somebody else's pain, but we can become really good at doing that. We don't have to be therapists and we're not meant to be therapists in this situation, but we can, we can listen. We can open the conversation up to enable someone to feel heard and seen. And in that moment, even if it's five minutes of being heard and seen we can start a process of a little bit of healing and that's that's what I'd love to get in the workplace I'm doing more sort of talks really sort of in the corporate world now about that kind of how managers can you know manage without actually with, with, to kind of doing it in a way that they don't they're not left feeling uncomfortable because there is a person that oh my goodness how do I then deal with if someone says that they're not feeling so well and actually, a cup of tea and a chat is often all it needs. And that, that lovely bonding that comes in that process is where I think we could all do a little bit better. And I think that's where, you know, this whole Zoom thing, people are being able to be a bit more honest because they've got stuff going on in the background, whether it's teenagers fighting or somebody having to go and get the dog out or whatever. It prompts more conversations. But I think there's a little bit we can do a little bit better, or at least when we're given permission to really say, well, how, and how are you? On a scale of one to 10, it makes all the difference to yeah. that person's day. I, I, and, I, I and, so you agree. Know. And I, I do that with all my teams when we do our check-in. We do on a, a scale of one to 10. And, and, and it's really beautiful because, you know, and I start with me. <laughs> so, you know, it's very honest. And, and it's really helpful because then the team all know we, where each other are at, you know, and like, and like, where they can help, you know, and, and the follow-up question really is, how can we help you? Brilliant. So you're already doing it, you see, as I would expect. Well, I don't know about that. I'm still in learning. I'm still in training. I've, I've, there's much more uh, to go, but, 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 you know, I, yeah, you know, it's a journey. We're all learning. And Kate, I just wanted to, you know, ask you, you know, as you know, we, we always wrap this, this up with, with the question. 
you know, what is your top tip or top tips, you know, for people who want to, you know, start somewhere and get going on this journey? Okay. I would say have faith in yourself. Do not let fear override what your heart is telling you. And remember my dad who said hard work works and to dream big because living life in our own shadow of being afraid to try is a much darker place than actually stepping out into what can feel like the abyss. But actually, there's always going to be a net that catches you. And that's where your faith comes in. And life is then lived in multicolor when you do that. So have faith, have heart, follow your dreams and uh, dream big. I love that. And I loved your dad too. Oh, Kate, my dear special friend, thank you for everything you're doing um, for the world. Uh, you know, it's very humbling and you inspire me on a daily basis and I love you very dearly. And, and oh, thank you, Sarah. It's been wonderful to see you. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. 